If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Ezra, you can find First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's right after Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll pray, Father. I just ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to us today. You'll open your Word up to us, and I ask you'll put a burning desire in us for your Word, and also, Lord, a burning desire to seek your face as you say we should, and I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. We're going to look at some principles. We're going to mainly be focusing in on Ezra chapters 7 and 8. But before that, I just want to briefly give a a little background of the book. A lot of times you get a good study Bible and you can find out quite a bit. You don't even need to have uh, commentaries or all that. There's some good study Bibles out there. But Ezra is basically divided into two sections. It can easily be divided into two distinct periods of history. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, they give us an account of the first return of the Jewish captives from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and that happened in 536 B.C. So whether you knew it or not, there was three different times when they were exiled. That happened in three different periods, but they also had three different returns. Okay, and Ezra gives us two of those returns. The first one is under Zerubbabel. So if you're there in Ezra, just look in chapter 1. We're not going to read through all of this, obviously, but just so you can see there, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to do what? To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Those exact same words are put at the end of Chronicles, by the way, of Second Chronicles that lead right into Ezra. Jeremiah the prophet had predicted that Israel would be captive for, we all know, 70 years. And Jeremiah 29, 10, he says this. Now, this was before it all happened. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, he says, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. We know this. God is not only, we know from what Jesus said, he not only is in charge of a sparrow falling to the ground, but he is also in charge of what happens with the nations, isn't he? He's in total control of everything. So when his prophet speaks by the Spirit of God and says, in 70 years, you will return, that is exactly what's going to happen and did happen. But I'll tell you what I think is even more amazing than that is another prophet, Isaiah, 200 years before this happened, he had predicted by name that Cyrus, he named Cyrus 200 years before he became king, before he was ever born. Isaiah did never see him. He didn't know, but God did, didn't he? He knows the end from the beginning, and he predicted that Cyrus would cause the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. In Isaiah 44, 28, here's what Isaiah said, Thus saith the Lord, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Only the God of heaven could do that. I mean, through his prophets, predicts everything. And everything that he has ever said, everything that is in this word has come to pass. And everything that's recorded in here as history is true. These Old Testament scholars, most of them are liberals, and they're like, well, we've never found such and such a city, such and such a king, never found any record of all of it. And all that keeps happening as history goes on is they're finding more and more. Well, no, we found this just now that confirms the Bible. They never find anything that unconfirms the Bible. Every jot, every tittle, every promise that God has ever made will come to pass. And that should encourage anyone in here that is holding on to a promise. As we said in Joshua, there has not failed one good word of all that he has promised. That's the God we serve. The first six chapters of Ezra tell us about 42,360 Jews under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They returned to rebuild the temple, Solomon's temple. Nebuchadnezzar had razed it to the ground. That whole area, Judah and Jerusalem, was laid waste. It took 20 years to complete the temple. And they had problems. They laid the foundation and they got going. And 
What happened was, we know from Zechariah and Haggai, two prophets that were at that time, the people became more interested in their homes, and the heathen managed to get the king to issue a decree to put a stop to the building. So everything came to a halt, ground to a halt. The people are discouraged. Zerubbabel is discouraged. Everything stops. And like I said, God had to raise up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to put a fire back under the Jews. And that's what happened. Zechariah writes, you can go back and read. It's in the first four chapters. An angel, it says, an angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, appears to him. And he gives him a word. I want to give you a word, Zechariah, to give to Zerubbabel. And I'm going to tell you. You're discouraged. You're looking at this. He's saying this temple is not going to be built by some work of the flesh. Because here was the word that came that the angel gave this word to Zechariah. Zechariah 4, 6, 9. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, and we sing this song, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. In other words, what is this obstacle that's before Zerubbabel that you think you can't overcome? He's saying, by my spirit, it's not going to be by anything. You're going to do rub, Zerub, whatever you want to call him, whatever his nickname would have been. That's a long name to say every time. But he's saying, there's nothing you're going to do to get rid of that mountain, but my spirit will take care of it. And he says, and he shall, Zerubbabel shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying. We heard a message on this by Brother Fryer. Great message. What did they shout? Grace, grace, grace unto it. And he said, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also finish it. And then when that happens, he says, thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. So by the shoutings of grace, by God's grace, and by the power of the Spirit, Zerubbabel finished the temple exactly 70 years from the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 A.B. Finished it in 516 B.C. And what does that tell us? Like I said, all that tells us big time is what? God is faithful. If he says something, he'll do it. Chapter 6 of Ezra ends with the new temple. It's being dedicated and they celebrate something that hadn't been done for a long time, at least 70 years or more. It was done back in the day of Josiah when he was king, but they celebrated the Passover. And if you look there at the end of chapter 6, look what it says in verses 21 and 22. And it says, the children of Israel which were come again out of captivity and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. This is what we're going to be talking about today. What did they do to seek the Lord God of Israel? They did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days. And how did they do it? With joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And why shouldn't there be joy? Now that temple was nothing like Solomon's, but the fact of the matter is, who would have ever thunk it except that God had promised it? Faith's mom, Jackie, her favorite scripture was Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, 29, 10 is the one where he promises I'll bring you back because he says, my thoughts are greater than your thoughts. I think great things towards you. That's just a great verse. I got it on my mantle now, thanks to faith. I do. I got it all lit up on my mantle. That's a great verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, that's what happened. Between the sixth chapter, now what we have going on here is after the end of the sixth chapter in Ezra and the seventh chapter, there's a period of 60 years. There's a 60-year gap there. You don't see it, you're not going to know it by reading, but it's there between chapter six and seven. And during that 60-year period, just for your information, that's when Esther took place during those 60 years. The book is named Ezra. Ezra is not mentioned. He's not involved in the whole first six chapters of that book. But the remaining part of the book, chapters 7 to 10, are all about Ezra. And Ezra and the second group that he leads back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He leads about 5,000 people, 1,400 men. 
and he does this in 458 BC. And when he gets there, there's a new king on the scene in charge of everything now, Artaxerxes. And Ezra's introduced. Here we have it. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and on and on and on. He's introduced. Ezra is going to lead a group of people, 5,000 people, back to Jerusalem. And what we're going to get into, we'll see more of this later, is he doesn't want to ask the king for troops to go with him, to escort him. And why was that? Why was it that he didn't want to do that? And that's what today's message is. So if you'll look over in chapter 8, Ezra 8, verses 21 and 22. He's got to bring these people back. A long journey. And he says, Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, and what did they say? The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all those that forsake him. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And that expression is used six times. The hand of our God is for good upon those that seek him. At least the hand of our God is for good. Look in verse 18. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. And that's the title of the message today. The good hand of our God upon us. So I've heard that, and maybe you have, I've heard that expression used many times that they'll talk about someone and they'll say the hand of God was on him. I'll tell you what came to mind to me about that for some reason, but when Greg's wife, Carrie, when Sister Carrie had her funeral and Brother Hamilton delivered the sermon, the eulogy, whatever you want to call it, God's hand was on him when he did that. And what he said, everything he said and the way that was conducted, I'll tell you how I know that. Not only because I sat there and listened to it, my dad was sitting next to me. And my dad does not profess to be a Christian, doesn't want anything to do with Christianity at this point in his life right now. And he really didn't care for our church and didn't like Brother Hamilton. Not for any particular reason. But he's sitting there, and I can tell him, I know my dad well enough, that I can tell as he's listening to what Brother Hamilton's saying, he's being moved, he's being stirred in his heart in a special way. And it wasn't because Brother Hamilton was all so eloquent. I mean, it was eloquent. But it's because God's hand was on him and the Spirit of God was speaking through him. And my dad, this didn't surprise me. I could tell something was going on with him. And he looked at me when it was over and he goes, I am almost persuaded to join your church. And I'm thinking, Dad, just please take that next step. He talked about it then. He talked about it over at Greg's house afterwards. He talked about it. On and on and on, went home and told my family about it. I mean, he just couldn't get over that. That's how much it moved him. The point is, when God's hand is on you, something's happening. It's the Spirit of God that comes on you. I mean, my dad told me that. My jaw about dropped off all the way. Listen, isn't that what we want in our life? To know that God's hand is on us and on our family? God's hand, that's just a phrase to mean it's His gracious goodness on us. It's that mercy and goodness that follows us all the days of our life. That's Psalm 23, isn't it? We want that to be following us, overtaking us, tackling us, and all over us, don't we? That's what we want. Let's ask the question, why was the hand of God on Ezra? You know, what was it about Ezra? That's what we need to find out, isn't it? So it can be the same for us. Who was Ezra? Well, getting back to chapter 7, Verses 1 to 5 tell us this without getting into all the names, but it's telling who his father goes right on down. You know where it ends up? You know who he descended from directly? Aaron, the high priest. Aaron, Moses' brother. There's no question about his bloodline. There's no question about his right to be a priest before God. He has got impeccable credentials, if you want to put it that way. That's one thing we know about him. But what the writer of this story, the narrator, whoever it is, it might have been Ezra himself, what he wants to emphasize about Ezra is not so much his bloodline. He doesn't talk about that anymore. 
but he talks about repeatedly his zeal and his dedication for the Word of God. And look, look in verse 6. Look what it says. It says, This Ezra, this Ezra who's the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all of his requests. Look what it says there. Again, here's the first of the six places. According to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. What we see there, it says he was a ready scribe. Ready means he was skilled. He was well-versed in the law of Moses. And there's a connection that the writer's making there between this man studied, knew well, was well-versed in the law of God. And there's a connection there in that verse between that and the fact that the hand of his God was upon him. Do you see that? And if you don't see it there, look down a few verses later in the same chapter, chapter 7. Look what it says in verses 7, 9 to 10. And it says this, For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. This is just summing up the journey here in verse 9. And on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. How? According, here it is again, according to the good hand of his God upon him. But look at verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statues and judgments. Verse 9 is telling us that God gave Ezra a successful journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's what it tells us. And it says, because the good hand of his Lord was upon him. And the four in verse 10 that begins verse 10 tells us what? That tells us why. Why the good hand of the Lord was upon him to give him a successful journey. For, the English word for in Hebrew, the Hebrew word is pronounced key. And that is the key to understanding why God's blessing was on Ezra, and it's the key for us. It says that Ezra, in verse 9, Ezra had prepared his heart, or set his heart, or devoted and dedicated his heart to do, it says, three things there. And the first one, it says, to seek the law of the Lord. And seek means to seek with care, to carefully study God's Word. This is a person that just isn't going through reading his little daily bread verse or he's checking off his box that he's done his little scripture reading and done his duty. Well, this is a person here that is seeking and searching with a real concern to walk in the ways of God with integrity. It's a person with a consistent, careful pattern of reading the word, searching for answers Issues come up in his life. I'm going to go to the Word to find out how does God want me to deal with this? Not how does the world, not does how does everybody else, but how does God, I'm his servant, how does he want me to deal with this situation in my life? That's what that kind of person is. Not somebody dependent on other people's opinions. Even Christians, other Christian groups, other Christian authors, whatever. There's nobody out there that claims to be Christian that's got some teaching doctrine that doesn't use Scripture, but that doesn't mean they're using it aright, does it? I mean, we ought to know that for sure. You know, when I first became pastor, this was several years ago, I was talking to somebody and I was asking them about an occupation they were in and promoting. And I asked, and I was, I'm just saying, I said, I'm just curious. I said, how do you think that what you're doing lines up with the Word? Have you ever studied the topic? Because there's big ramifications to everything you're about right now. And you know what the answer was? The answer was, I was just honestly asking. I wasn't like thinking, well, obviously you haven't. I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe they had, and this is just the conclusion they came to. No, the answer was, no. I've never studied this out. The way I took that was, I could tell there was no intention to. And there never was, as far as I know. And the reason is because it would involve a major change, potentially. A major career change, a major change in ethics, a lot of change. And listen, it's a lot easier not to study than to change, isn't it? You know, Brother Hamilton used to always tell that story about that lady. He said, I'm going to teach on the holidays. And she says, well, then I'm not going to be there. Because she thought, you know, ignorance was going to somehow make her not culpable or not guilty. Well, it doesn't work that way in the Bible. 
But the point is that Ezra wasn't like that. Now, here's a man that you want God's hand to be on your life. He wasn't like that. He knew that God's hand only rests on those that seek his law, that seek it with care. What happens in our group is we think we've heard all this word. We don't know half of what we think we know. Because I'm telling you, searching the word is something that never ends. Because you're growing, you're maturing, things become more real to you. Your eyes get open to things that you didn't need to have your eyes open to, say, 10 years ago. Just don't think, well, I heard a healing message, I got that down. No, you don't. You constantly need to be refreshed. It's like I said the other night, you know, you're struggling in that area. You get in a trial and you're just like, man, I don't have what I need. Well, fine, get you through that. But like Brother Hamilton used to say, so then it's not me saying it. Get through that, whatever you have to do, but then don't just leave it there and then wait for the next three years to come by and you've never made any preparation to find out what do I have to do to trust God to make this work. And do people do that? I don't know. Maybe people do. I know some people do. I think Ezra would have. I think that's the way he did it. We got a lot of wrong ideas that have crept in. I'm just saying, I don't mean this in a bad way or a rebuke, but things, I've seen it happen. We've had good, solid teaching, but on areas, I could name all these different areas, but things like non-resistance, divorce and remarriage, healing, how faith operates, and all of this. We got some funny thinking on a lot of this stuff. And the Jews in Ezra's day did just what they thought was right. They didn't know the law. They didn't want to know the law. And what did they do? They went and married these foreign wives. Ezra, though, you know what? He knew the law. He wasn't wondering, I don't know, this may be okay. Well, we don't want to be legalistic. (laughs) People need to marry somebody they love. So there are a few counties over. Did he approach things like that? Ezra knew the law, and when you know the law, these errors that come around, this change in thinking, it's not going to trip you up, is it? But if you don't know the law, then guess what happens? You're open to that. You're susceptible to that. And when he heard that, this is what it says. You can read it. It's over in chapter 9. It says he tore his clothes. Can you imagine? It says he pulled out the hair of his beard. He pulled out. I'm like, man, I don't have to pull mine out. It's just falling out quicker than I can pull it out. But he pulled all the hair of his head out. And it ends by saying that he sat down after he heard that. He was astonished, it says. Couldn't believe what he had heard and seen that they're doing. And this is how he prayed. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. He put himself in there with the people and he confessed, we have left your commandments. And what he said is, I don't understand this. Why are the people doing this? Because the very thing they're doing is the very reason that the other temple was destroyed and they got carried into captivity. Because they didn't want to know your law. They didn't seek your word. They didn't seek your face. And that's what caused you, didn't we read it in verse 22? His power and his wrath is against those that forsake him. And that's what they've done and they experienced that. And he's like, I don't understand. Why are they doing this now? He gets on them, doesn't he? They had the law, but they weren't practicing it. Israel did, the people. And that's the second thing. That brings us to the second thing that Ezra dedicated himself to. It says that he sought the law of the Lord and what? To do it. It's right there. Verse 10, for he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Not just to study it, but to practice it. Because you're not going to find this about Ezra. He was not a hypocrite. You know, a lot of the leaders, all their blemishes, David, Moses, I mean, their blemishes come out. I'm sure he had his whatever. (laughs) But you don't read about it. There's no blemishes that you read about with Ezra. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was a man that was a godly man. He lived a godly life and practiced it. Unlike the scribes, you know, you hear of scribes, you think of the scribes in Jesus' day. Well, he gets on them for what? Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. They talked the law. They knew the law. They liked to argue the law. But guess what they weren't doing? They weren't living the law. And we can be like that sometimes, can't we? But Ezra, no, not Ezra. We can learn from him. He was a doer of the word, like we've been hearing in James. He wasn't just a sermon taster. He was a sermon tester. When he heard it, he's like, show me how I can put this in practice because I want to please you. 
I don't want to just gain all this knowledge, have all this study and gain all this knowledge so my head could be puffed up. For him, if knowledge wasn't put into practice, what's the point of it? Isn't that the way it should be for us? We come here, hear all this teaching, sit here. We hear about that we should go out and evangelize. Do we do that? Do we look for opportunities? We hear that we should pray. Do we pray? Now, all of us can get convicted about that, including me. I think, man, we can always pray more than we do, can't we? Because for me, it's easy to study. I like studying. And I'll be studying, and I'm thinking, you know, you should pray. Well, I'll pray here in just a little bit, and I'll even say, you know, at this point. It's easy just to let that point just keep going, and I'll pray tomorrow. Am I the only one that's like that? It's not that I don't pray, but as far as praying like you should, you know what I'm talking about. He was a doer of the word, but not only that, he wanted to be able to teach it to others so that God could bless them. And back in verse 10, it says he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it. And the third thing was to teach in Israel. So he knew that if the people weren't taught the law, they wouldn't know what God required. So he made it his life's business to know the law, to live the law, and to teach the law. And I don't know how many of you remember, but that's what he was about. And back in Nehemiah chapter 8, it's a pivotal point in the book of Nehemiah. One thing I thought, you know what, we ought to go on a fast on and see what happened. We went on a fast of three months of not hearing any word. You know, I think that might stir up a little bit of desire. But the people, they'd been without hearing that word for how long? A long time, 70 years, and they got a hunger. And it said, it wasn't like they had to be asked to come and chided, you know, you need to come, come adore me. No, it says they asked Ezra to read to them out of the law of the Lord. And they all gathered in front of him. And it says they built a pulpit. And he's standing up in front of them. To read it, it says he stood on a huge platform and it says that Ezra opened the book of the law in the sight of all the people. For he was above the people, it says, and it says, listen to this, when he opened it, when he opened the word up to him, all the people, it said, they stood up to honor the reading of the word of God. It says they stood up and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, with lifting up their hands. And it says they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were that excited about hearing God's word. They couldn't get over it. You listen to old tapes of different ministries, and all the minister would have to do would be announce his text, and you got amens, praise the Lord, can't wait to hear more. And it just would go on from there, right? You could just feel the excitement. Is there still that hunger? And I'm not saying we need to have that, <laughs> but is there still that hunger for God's word in your heart? Because listen to this. It goes on to say, you go back and read Nehemiah 8, that they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, Ezra and others, and they gave the sense of what was read and caused them to understand the reading. And you know what the people's response was? It says the people wept when they heard the law read. They wept. And why did they weep? They hadn't heard the law in years. And when they did hear it, they realized how far away from God they were. And it brought them to tears. And it wasn't just that. You know who was at work through all of this? Who's the one that calls these people to come back? It goes clear back if you reread Ezra 1. He moved on Cyrus's heart to allow them to go back, to give them the money to build the temple. But it also says he put it in those people's hearts to go back to Jerusalem, to go back and build the temple, to go back and to be in fellowship with God. And all of that included and culminated in the hearing of His Word. Brought them to tears because familiarity, as the saying goes, brings contempt. But when they hadn't heard the Word, it didn't bring contempt. It brought what in their lives? Conviction and repentance, and God was bringing a revival to them. He did. That's what Ezra says in that line. He says, you brought a little reviving. Even though these people married these foreign wives, you still brought a little revival in us. God was at work in them. They desired to be in his presence to honor the Passover. Thank him for all of that, bringing them back and hearing his word. 
there was an excitement there. So if you would, just turn back to 2 Chronicles 34. So your Ezra is just the next book back and turn to chapter 34. The people wept when they heard the word. The same thing happened to Josiah. Josiah was the last of the godly kings, said there was no king like him before or after. But his father was probably the most wicked of all the kings, Manasseh. Manasseh had tried to wipe out God's name, his law. Everything about him tried to wipe it out. The temple was a mess. It was in total disrepair. Josiah, under Jeremiah, began to purge the land of idolatry, which was a pretty bold thing for a young boy to be doing. And he poured money in. He says, I want to get the temple back to the way it should be. Poured money back into restoring the temple. And as it was being restored, a priest that was doing the work in there, Hilkiah the priest, found the book of the law. I mean, they didn't even know where it was. They didn't even care. That's kind of bad, isn't it? The people of God and his word, they don't even care where their book of the law is. So they brought it to Josiah, and when he heard it read, what was his reaction? Well, if you're in 2 Chronicles 34, look what it says beginning in verse 19. It says this, And it came to pass, when the king Josiah had heard the words of the law, he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, and the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for them that are left in Israel, and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And Hilkiah, and they that the king had appointed, went to Hudah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. Go to this prophetess. And they spoke to her to that effect. And here's how she answered him. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, tell you the man that sent you to me. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, he says, my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. But look in verse 26. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what you say to him. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. And let's focus in on verse 27. He says, because your heart was tender... And you did humble thyself before God when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof. And humblest thyself before me and did rend thy clothes and, there it is again, weep before me. God says, what? I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. When he heard that word and it affected him and he wept and then humbled himself before the Lord when he realized we have not and I have not been walking in your ways and repented. It says, God says, I've heard you. I'll bless you. That's what he told Josiah, didn't he? And his hand was going to be on him and it was on him. So listen, I know many times we hear the word, the word, the word. And there's just not that much excitement about the word like there was. But I'm going to say it's not because the word's not exciting. Maybe it's because, we can think about this each for ourselves, we've lost Ezra's heart. Because it's a sacrifice to study the word, to practice the word, and then look for ways to share the word with others. Doing that with all of your heart is what makes Christianity worth living. That's what's going to make your Christian life worth living. And as we've seen, and the point is, that is what is going to bring God's hand on your life. Trust me. You're saying you're dry, I don't get anything out of whatever all else. I'm telling you, the problem is not with the Word. It might be with my preaching and all that. Okay, fine. It's not with the Word of God. It really isn't. And it's not with this Christian life. It's not with the message of trusting Him, living a holy life. No, we're not being deprived. If you pay attention to the news, oh, we're being deprived because we have to be celibate if we're young people. And we can't be just running around with every girl or every guy and doing whatever and 
can't be homosexual, like we're somehow being deprived. Have you guys, anybody paid attention to the news with all of these reports coming out about what Hollywood, the free love society, what's going on there? These people are so filthy and dirty and molesting these young people, taking advantage of them. That is nothing to be envied. It's like, well, it makes you not want to watch another movie again. It's like, this is what's going on behind the scenes with these people. They're unclean as can be. Filthy in God's sight. Nothing to be envious of. And that's what happened. And we could go through church history, but we don't have to go any further than the Bible. But the men whose God's hand was upon their life are men that were zealous for the Word of God. Eaten up with the Word of God. Totally devoted to it. Without exception. What about Moses? You think he was eaten up with the Word of God? I think he was. I think we could safely say that. Daryl just taught a few weeks back a good message about Joshua, Jericho. And I would say, wouldn't you, I would say God's hand was on Joshua. And what happened there at Jericho? Amen? That's Joshua chapter 6 that we read about Jericho. Do you know why Joshua in Joshua chapter 6 was able to do what he did? It's because Joshua was told something back in Joshua chapter 1. And if you would turn there, we'll look at it. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. And look what it says. The Lord tells him, Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. That's Jericho is included in there. Well, look what he says in verses 7 through 9. Only be thou strong and very courageous. And where does that strength and courage come from? That you may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded you, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper whithersoever thou goest. That sounds like the hand of the Lord is on you when you do that. And look what he says in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but you will meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. And I'd say that's a big condition, isn't it? That you know the word, you meditate. When he says speak the word, they would speak it out loud. Speak it to yourself, meditate on it, and walk therein. And he's saying, then the hand of God will be upon you. You're like, well, that's no new revelation. Well, are you doing it? <laughs> I mean, that's the key. Paul knew the word. He exhorted Timothy, study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed before God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And let me ask you this. This ought to settle all debate on, well, should we really make the word that important? I don't really want to be that deep. I'd rather talk about bowling or deer or whatever. Well, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? What importance do you think he placed on the Word of God. Was he out in the wilderness and did he have to say, wait a minute, the devil's tempting him? Wait a minute, let me find my pocket concordance because I got it. That verse is close. I got to know what to say to you. Was it that way for him? Not at all. He right away rightly divided, thus it is written, because when the devil tried to twist it, he had to untwist it for him, didn't he? <laughs> You're saying that, devil, but that's not the way it is. But listen up, young people. When Jesus was a young man, he didn't spend his days surfing DeadSea.com. He didn't. But you know where he was at? It says, if you read Luke, he was in the temple at 12 years old. In the temple. His parents, it says, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Hearing the word that they spoke, and then asking questions because he wanted to do and understand and do it. It says he had to grow in understanding and wisdom. He didn't just have it all. He wasn't just born with perfect knowledge. He had to grow. He was fully human, wasn't he? And asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Well, that's something, isn't it? You're too young? You're saying it's for the old people to get in the Word. No, it's not. 
It's for saved people. So if you say you're saved and you're six years old, you should have a desire for the word or six, 16, 26, up to 66 or 86, however far we can go in here. Amen. That's the way it is. To sum up this whole thing about Ezra, the hand of God was on him because of his love for the word. Alec Motyer said this. He said the implication, and I think this sums it up pretty well. The implication is clear. Ezra, the man of the word of God, is the man of the power and blessing of God. Ezra, the man of the word of God, is Ezra, the man of the power and the blessing of God. And that's what everybody says they want. Oh, I want more of the power and the blessing of God in my life. How much of a priority really is the word of God then? And believing it and doing it and practicing it. We come back to Ezra 8 and he's gathered the people that are going back with him to Ahava. In verse 15, it says, I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava and there abode we in tents three days. I viewed the people and the priest didn't find any of the sons of Levi, so he goes. And here's another one. It's like none of them wanted to show up. So Ezra trusted God. The hand of the Lord was on him. And some of those Levites were brought in. We're not necessarily going to talk about that. But what is this gathering at the river Ahava? What does that mean? What does that mean for Ezra? There are 5,000 gathered here before this man. 5,000 men, women, and children. The journey that they're taking it's clear over the great river Euphrates, clear over the desert, go over to Babylon. It's direct east, but there's a, you can't go a direct route. It's 800 miles that they have to travel. That's the distance from Louisville to Fort Myers, Florida. If you drove from here on I-75 down to Fort Myers, Florida, it becomes 900 miles because it's not a, just a total straight path. But it would take you driving nonstop 18 hours in 15 minutes, supposedly. I don't know where they get the 15 minutes from. Guess how long it's going to take Ezra and company to go this 800 miles? Four months. That's four months with children traveling by foot. I had to take my little boy John, Owen, Jack, Avi, and Molly, five kids, take them one day down to Kentucky Down Under. 86 miles, one and a half hour drive. They're great kids, and we had a blast, but I'm just telling you, I wouldn't want to do that for four months and 800 miles. <laughs> and I really did have a good time, but they were great kids. But you think, not on top of that, Ezra's not got the responsibility of all these people, all these kids and their family. He's also transporting a vast amount, I mean a vast amount of gold and silver and the Lord's vessels. And if you look in chapter 7, look what it says over in verses 15 to 16. And he says, And to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose inhabitants is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon, with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. And then it goes down in verse 19, it says, And the vessels also that are given thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. And guess what that's going to do? Word is going to get out. And they've got all this silver, gold, and the Lord's vessels. That's going to make them the target of every, and there was tons of them. This was a common occurrence. Groups of bandits, marauders. Seeing this band going along there down in this valley, they're up on the mountains. It's like, mm, they're just licking their chops. Oh, man, silver, gold. Mm, they can't even hardly carry it themselves. Can't wait to get down there to get it. So it's going to be what? A very dangerous journey. I mean, it really would be. This is not some story that's made up. Ezra has a great task ahead of him, doesn't he? The responsibility of these people, the responsibility of delivering all this wealth and the Lord's vessels. And he has told the king, maybe he wished he hadn't opened his mouth. I don't know. But he's told the king, Artaxerxes, that the God of Israel is not like other gods. Look in verse 22 again. He says, I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. Power and wrath is against all those that forsake him. Right now, what does he have to do? He has got to visually demonstrate. This is what Ezra the scribe has got to do. Visually demonstrate to all of these people and to this king that God's word is true, doesn't he? 
that if you obey God's words, God's hand will be on you for good. You know what's funny about the Bible? It only brings out the things that it wants to bring out. Because I'm saying if this was a regular book, it would tell you all the ins and outs, daily occurrences. It doesn't tell you anything about the journey, does it? As this British preacher says, it sums it up in two verses. If you'll turn back, chapter 8, look in verses 31 to 32, here's all it says. It says, when we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go into Jerusalem, and here it is the sixth time, though, the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. So it just kind of says that almost a matter of fact. God's hand was on us, delivered us from the enemy, and we made it there. I mean, that's kind of pretty much matter of fact, isn't it? And you know why? Because what made it a matter of fact is what Ezra did before the journey. Before the journey. Now listen, we all have journeys ahead of us. We might be in a journey right now with dangers and difficulties that we would have never imagined. Now, you said you would keep on your journey. There's sometimes I think, I don't know that I'd have started. I was talking to a brother about this the other night. I don't know, we don't know you necessarily, if you knew what all lay ahead of you, as you start walking through whatever, you might have done a little something different, right? But we don't know about that, because Israel, I think if they'd have known when they left Egypt that Pharaoh's going to be right behind them and the Red Sea's right before them, and they did, they're like, what in the world are we doing out here? Why'd you bring us out here? And we didn't sign up for this. But that's the way it works, isn't it? We're on a journey, going to be on a journey. Journeys are facing us. What do we need to do? We've committed ourselves to walking with the Lord, and we've already been told it's through much tribulation that we'll enter the kingdom. What did Ezra do before the journey he was on that gave him success? Now, he knew in advance it was going to be fraught with danger. And here's what he did. He chose to pray, to seek God and fast. And that's what we have there. Verse 21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right of way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. And the name Ezra means Yahweh is my help. And that became Ezra's confession before men, didn't it? And what did Ezra choose as his weapons of defense against the dangers that he knew were coming? Because he turned down the king's soldiers and horsemen. And I'm sure he got a little bit of criticism for that from the people, don't you? From some of the folk. What are you doing, Ezra? It was free help. And it would have guaranteed our safety there. And I've got five kids under the age of 20 that are going to be helpless. And old Ezra probably would have quoted Psalm 27 to 9. Well, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen. In other words, those horses aren't guaranteed. They're brought low. But we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. And he's telling them, wait a minute, fellas. God will help us. That's what he said. And he's probably saying, wait a minute, y'all. I'm sorry about what I did, but y'all remember Jehoshaphat? Well, I was reading the other day where a great multitude came against him and Judah, and the Lord told him, lay down your weapons and just trust in me. The Lord told him, you shall not need to fight in the battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Ezra would have been, I noticed before that, that Jehoshaphat had all the scribes teaching the people. And when they saw that army coming at him, it says they sought the Lord and they fasted and they prayed. And God gave them a great victory. So I was telling the king about that, what I read that day. I'm sorry, I told him about that and told him that for all that seek him, the hand of the Lord will be for good on them. He'll fight for them. And he's like, so how can I ask him now, since I told him all of that and told him about that story, that it's true in the Bible. When I said that God would take care of us, how can I ask him for soldiers? And they're probably like, Ezra, 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 why do you always have to be quoting the Bible? This is reality. I talked about Ezra. In a class, something got brought up about non-resistance. They all came at me about that. Like, what are you talking about? That's not the way God's going to protect us and all. That's a Bible story in the Old Testament. Da-da-da-da-da. Not reality. Well, what is reality? I would say reality is the Word of God, isn't it? And Jesus said, Thy Word is truth. 
or to put it another way, thy word is reality. And the reality is this, I would say, the reality is that there is none, no one that sincerely and earnestly sought the Lord that ever sought him in vain. Because God promises that he will bless all those that seek him. And we have got to believe that. We do. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And it says he that comes to God must believe those two things. Must. The word means it is necessary. It's essential. It's a must that we believe he rewards seekers. And we have it right here with Ezra. He did. Psalm 9 says, Those who know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, has not forsaken them that seek thee. Psalm twenty-two twenty-six: The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. And Psalm 34, 10 says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Do we believe that? Not be in want of any good thing. So 2 Chronicles 31, Hezekiah was a good king. It says he did that which was good and right in the sight of the Lord, walked in all the ways of his father David. He, like Josiah and a lot of the reformers in 2 Chronicles, reformer kings, cleansed the temple, restored to worship, restored Passover, and when Sennacherib invaded Judah, God gave Hezekiah a mighty deliverance. And he had to do nothing but just trust him. And why was that? Listen to 2 Chronicles 31. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. Here's what he did. It says, He did that which was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. He lived good and right and faithful before his God. And then it goes on to say, and all that he did in the service of the temple of God and in his efforts to follow God's laws and commands, it says this, Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. As a result, it says he was very successful or he prospered in all he did. He sought his God wholeheartedly. I'm sure Ezra had told Artaxerxes about Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat, all the other kings that he'd read about that had sought the Lord, trusted the Lord, and the Lord had blessed. I'm sure then that Ezra feels like if he's going to trust the Lord like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, he better pray like those guys did. So he proclaimed a fast. And why did he do that? It says that we might afflict or humble ourselves before our God. What does fasting do in that case? It just demonstrated what? their total dependence, Ezra and all his fellow Jews, the total dependence that they had on the power of God to deliver them and to protect them. So all they're saying when they're fasting is, we are looking to you, looking to you. We need your help because if you don't help us, we will be slaughtered in this desert. That's where we're going to be, us, our little ones, and all we have. And that is what humility in prayer is all about, isn't it? It means we're honest and open about our dependence on God's mercy. That's what humility in prayer, because pride is just the opposite of that, isn't it? Pride is a person who is unwilling to admit the truth about his frailty, about his dependence on the Lord. And that's why it says in 1 Peter 5 that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That word resist means opposes actively fighting against. He's at war with them. Why? The ones that don't think they need to seek him. And that's why it says in Ezra 8.22 that his power and his wrath is against all those that forsake him. That would be the proud. And the fast is just showing we are dependent on you, Lord. We need you to come through or we are sunk, us and our children. It's the same way with when Jehoshaphat fasted, when Asa fasted when danger and peril was headed their way. And God honors that though, doesn't he? You're not earning anything from the Lord. You're just saying, I need you. I need you more than anything else, more than my food, more than anything. I'm afflicting myself. God, have mercy on me. Have you ever been there in your life? You need God's protection, his guidance. 
his comfort, power for ministry. I heard a guy say that once. He's like, you know, when you minister, it's a good time not to have your stomach full. I never forgot that. I heard that years back. Because I'm telling you, go in prison, you're dealing with all kinds of spirits. You don't want to be dealing with, you just had something to eat. You're just not really spiritually ready. So you go out, you're going to witness, you got somebody you're going to talk to about the Lord. That's a good time maybe to miss a meal or two, wouldn't it be? Amen. So that's the answer. We've just seen the answer. You want to have God's hand upon us? We've looked at it today. We've got to be a seeker of God's word like Ezra, like Joshua, like Paul, like Jesus. We've got to be a Psalm 1 person. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. The good hand of the Lord will be on a man like that or a woman like that or any of us like that. And the second thing we said is we got to demonstrate our dependence on God through earnest prayer with fasting if necessary, I would say. So like we talked about last week with Philippians 4, 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said this. He said, in all our concerns about ourselves, our families, and our estates. It is our wisdom and our duty by prayer to commit them all to God and leave the care of all of it with Him. Humble ourselves in prayer. Peter said, God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that loving hand of God. Humble yourselves in dependence upon that, that He may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So that mighty hand of God that Peter is talking about is that good hand of the Lord that Ezra is talking about. It's not the good hands of all state, is it? It's the good hands of almighty God. And if you would, I want to just go through in Ezra 7 and just read the six places where Ezra talks about the good hand of the Lord. And we'll stop with that. Ezra 7, beginning in verse 6, says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And then if you go down to verse 9, For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God Upon him, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Verse 28 of chapter 7. And he hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. Chapter 8, verse 18, And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahai, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. And the last one over in verse 31 of chapter 8. And then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem. The hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from such as lay in wait by the way. And when the hand of the Lord is upon us, he will deliver us from our enemies. Isn't that what we want to see? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us. I ask, Father, that you'll put in all of our hearts a desire to seek your word, to walk in your ways, 
to not only study your word, but have a heart to do it, and also, Lord, also to have a heart to teach others. And so in doing that, Father, we can know and experience your hand being on us, and it will prosper in all we do, not just materially, Lord, but just that we'll know your spirit is upon us, and it will bear fruit to glorify you, to glorify what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I also ask you, Lord, that we'll continue as a people to come before you in humble prayer, knowing that we can trust in you. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember your name, the Lord our God, and that you will give us a mighty deliverance through your grace and through the power of your spirit and the blood of Jesus. That's all we need. Those are the only weapons we need. Just ask you'll make that real to all of us, Lord, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.